This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to episode 25 of Bobcast. We're continuing our discussion of Bobink on the conscience that we started a couple of weeks ago. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. And it's good to have you with us. Remember, we are looking at an article by Bob Inc. translated by Nelson Klosterman. That's linked in the show notes on our website, as well as a few sections of Reformed Ethics, released 2019 by Baker Academic. I think we can say in a manner, yeah, the, there is a certain subjectivity, a certain individuality in conscience. Um, it just can't be separated from how it plays out in the corporate. So there is a subjectivity and there is a social element. You know, you're going to have differences in certain customs, how we do things in various cultures of what they see is good uh, and what they see is bad. What's seen as good or bad from one culture to another seems to differ. Um, Bob Inc. gives an example on uh, the second paragraph or so of page 121, where he talks about, in Babylon, prostitution, not in daily life, but on the occasion of some religious festivals in the consecration of religion, was viewed as a highly praiseworthy deed. Just as one example. So prostitution culturally was so ingrained that it was a part of their religious activity. What's right and wrong seems to change from culture to culture and based on customs. Then does this mean relativism's okay? Well, no, relativism doesn't work because there has to be some kind of standard. If relativism is a real thing and if it really works, then you would have as many different versions of morality as you have people, which maybe in some sense you do in that there everybody has their own certain variations and interpretations and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, there are moral absolutes that hold pretty consistently across all cultures. For instance, the idea that you shouldn't just up and murder someone or you shouldn't, you know, steal. You shouldn't lie. I know we come back to this all the time, but it's important to consider that when we contrast it like we already did earlier to the Darwinian worldview, for instance. If Darwinianism was true and relativism and Darwinian ideas often run hand in hand, then the morals would be different. They wouldn't reflect what they do. In that way, you're talking about experience. An individual's experience getting wronged, you know when you're wronged. You know that there is some kind of notion of good and bad, of good and evil. You know, even in our society today in America, we have people rising up over issues of racial injustice and questions about police ethics. And I think, you know, just a decade ago, a lot of these people were relativists. You know, they're being firm again, saying, oh, there is a good and an evil. There's justice and injustice. And they're basing that from their experience. And they, they see that cops have failed in their duty. You know, whether they have or not is not the question here, what we're addressing. Um, but simply that people recognize there is a moral duty and responsibility. And they're trying to hold cops and the governments to that. What we can say is that the experience tells us that there is good and evil, but experience can't tell us why 
that's the case. Why something is good or evil or why there is the beautiful or ugly or the true and the false, as Bob Inc. says on page 122. Experience can't teach us these things. You know, therefore, there's issues with positivism and issues with materialism in saying that there is no good or evil or all that's around us can only be verified through scientific means and such. They can't tell us why, though. Right. So after going through then the scriptural description of the conscience, after going through these history and some of these philosophers, uh, ideologies like Darwinism, so on and so forth, Bob Inc. now gets to his thoughts on the conscience of what exactly it is. What is its essence? What is its function? Yeah, what is its function? Uh, how, how does it work here? He comes down and saying that on page 122 at the bottom there and moving on to page 123, he says the conscience is the law of our own personality, uh, which Andrew's already alluded to a bit here, but explicitly from Bob Inc., the conscience is the law of our own personality, our own personality, to the degree that it is in conflict with its own essence and idea. It rifts between the ideal person and the empirical person. So it, it evaluates between who one is and who one must be. It, it's a difference between the ideal and the reality. So the conscience is kind of like a bridge that's saying like, here is you, uh, who you are. And over on the other side is... Here is who you should be according to the law of God. And this is because the conscience is a knowledge shared by not only ourselves, but with God. So there's a subjective element, but it is connected to God first and foremost. So transgressing the law of our own personality, we also simultaneously break his law. So the question we have to ask is, who is the one who is judging? Some would say that, well, God is judging us through the conscience, but that's not correct. That's not really true because our consciences can err and God cannot err. So we can't say that it's God because it's not judging as God judges, which is to say perfectly and righteously. Uh, Bovink says on page 200 of Reformed Ethics, uh, nonetheless, we are not bound directly to God himself, but indirectly via the judging subject to state it more clearly it is we ourselves who are the subject that judges us so it is us judging ourselves essentially according to the law of god he says later page 201 we are obligated and bound by god to assess ourselves according to god's law and if we sin, to acquiesce with God's judgment on us. So we're basically passing judgment on ourselves, but according to what God has set forth. And that would mean then also the conscience itself is not infallible and it's not immutable. God's will is, God's law is, it's seated in his nature, as Andrew has said. If the conscience is not infallible, though, this means that understanding our conscience's way of understanding morality can be distorted and can be corrupted because we suppress the truth of the knowledge of God and his ways, right? We suppress the first and second table of the law. The conscience, though, can also change. Our opinions and thoughts on what's right and what's wrong can change uh, as we grow, as we learn our influences in the world, uh, where we travel to, whatever. We can experientially learn about differences between good and evil. But it doesn't mean that our assessment or our conclusions of why those are the cases, why something is good or bad, doesn't mean that it's correct. Right. Well, and then there's also issues where there is a matter that perhaps God's law is not explicitly clear on, and thus there has to be some interpretation going on, like to bring to mind a present issue and controversy. Should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? 
there's not a passage in scripture in God's law that says thou shalt wear masks or thou shalt not wear masks. There's other factors that have to be weighed in light of what God has commanded. Uh, actually, that is in Third Corinthians uh, 14, too. Oh, well, how did I miss that? You have to open the door to those guys that, you know, that go around house to house. Have you heard about uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? You got to, you know, let them in, actually let them into your house and then just hear what they have to say and take some of their pamphlets. And then pray about it until you get that burning in your bosom and and then you're good. No, don't do that. (laughs) So another issue that Bovink treats in discussing the conscience in reformed ethics, how does the conscience render judgment? First, he says that it does this in the form of a syllogism. So the major premise of the syllogism is the law or the word of God. The minor premise is the truth of the matter, the facts of the case, essentially. And then the conclusion is the application of approbation or condemnation. He is there citing Philip Melanchthon. So basically what is happening here is our conscience is rendering a judgment. It can either accuse and condemn us or it can exonerate and acquit us. This is the difference between a good and a bad conscience. A bad conscience is a conscience where accusation has been made and condemnation has been meted out. And a good conscience is where you're exonerated and you're acquitted. So in this case, then, what would we say then about the binding of the conscience? Like you mentioned the, say, differences on views about like masks and quarantine and all that. If this is all the case, what about judgment in, say, I think it's 1 Corinthians 8, 7 about eating food set before the idols? Uh, What do we do when, say, there's a stronger brother and a weaker brother? What do we do when the conscience judges, say, one Christian about wearing a mask? They should do it, you know, for the sake of others around them. And then another Christian says, you know, uh, my conscience is not condemning me. My conscience is not binding me to wear a mask. What do we do with all that? Well, one thing we need to recognize is that your conscience is not the Lord over me and vice versa. Your conscience lords over you, but it is not to bind anyone else's. We have a testimony of this, for instance, in Reformed Confessions, such as the Westminster Confession, chapter 20, paragraph 2, where it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of man, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also." Now, Bavink treats this particular issue of the binding or the freedom of the conscience, uh, page 213 and following of Reformed Ethics. So remember that the conscience is bound, is grounded in the moral law. And Bavink discusses this here. He says, the moral law is one immutable and valid for all people. We've already talked about this. The moral law doesn't change. It's bound up in God. It's part of his nature. At the same time, he continues, different people interpret the moral law each in their own way. 
They assimilate it in accord with their own nature, with the groups to which they belong, and with the societies in which they live. Another important consideration, sin darkens our knowledge of the moral law. All of us have abnormal consciences. If they were normal, all people would hear the same moral law, but in fact no one has perfect knowledge of the moral law, and the consciences of people vary in purity, clarity, and strength. So what we see here is, although the law that undergirds, the law that controls the conscience is the same, because we are fallen people, because we're sinful people, and then we're also influenced by the situation in which we live, we may not all interpret those laws the same way. Uh, One example he cites elsewhere is the keeping of Sabbath laws. There are some people that don't think that it is proper to go for a walk on the Sabbath. There are others that would be okay with such a thing. On these matters, we don't have a clear, definitive rule in scripture we have to in light of what we do have uh, make some judgments make some inferences try to figure out as best as we can what is required of us in a way then there is an objectivity of what the lord specifically requires and but there is a difference in in degree of how we understand it so in other words for some there's their understanding of say the law of god and its requirements are more developed and others are a little bit more undeveloped in certain topics. Some topics are just a lot more obscure. Paul gives in uh, Romans 14 great examples of this, um, this exact issue. You know, from verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You know, he goes on in verse 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God and going onwards. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Pursue what what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So Paul gave a uh, and gives complete uh, acknowledgement that there is a difference of that degree of who's more developed and undeveloped. For some, you know, the conscience continues to be bound by something that isn't in and of itself prohibited. And so sometimes, even as Christians, we continue to operate uh, to live in our undeveloped, weakened condition. The mind is being renewed by Christ, though. We're, we're being sanctified to more and more understand his ways, uh, his righteousness, and the law, and how to walk in it. Right. Bavink makes this distinction on page 211 of Reformed Ethics. A strong conscience is one that is established in the truth, they're quoting Romans, which knows that an idol is nothing, they're quoting 1 Corinthians 8, bears the weak, Romans 15.1, and is not offended, Romans 14.3. A weak conscience has been improved by faith, but nonetheless still depends on someone other than God and something other than his word. Consequently, it still considers some things unclean, is quickly saddened, is easily offended, and condemns others. Bovink here recognizing this distinction that Paul makes that some just aren't as far along in the Christian life, and so 
there may be traditions, there may be baggage, there may be other things they've brought in that they haven't yet reached the same point as you perhaps, but your job is not to get them on the right page, so to speak, so much as it is to bear with them in their weakness and encourage them and hope and pray that God does strengthen them in their faith. So in that way, then, nothing in and of itself can actually violate the conscience because the conscience is free in how it understands, how it pursues certain things, but it is not free under the authority of God himself. No one can violate your conscience. Nothing can violate your conscience except God is the one that determines what actually is right and wrong. How can our conscience, though, be perfected? How can it be renewed? Well, our conscience, as with all of us, the whole self, the whole person, is renewed in Christ. It is transformed in Christ. Uh, Bovink says on page 212, under the duty to and care of our own conscience, he says, Our first obligation to our conscience is to have our unclean, evil, restless consciences cleansed by the blood of Christ. They're citing Hebrews 9.14. A true conscience comes only through faith. Its accusations can be stopped only by the cross, where God's law was fully satisfied. Once we have obtained an objectively good conscience, so that is this conscience transformed by Christ, it must also be made subjectively good. We accomplish this, first of all, by bringing the word of God more and more into the synthesis, which is a term he used to describe the law, the legal standard of the conscience, and freeing it from all laws that conflict with it. And then he goes on to say later, in the second place, we must work at clarifying our consciousness so that with increasing purity, it reflects our situation, our dispositions and our deeds. To use an image, we must keep polishing the mirror of our consciousness. Oh, that's a nice image. No pun intended. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But pun intended. But it is an effective one because that is basically what our conscience does. It reflects back to us what we do. It renders judgment on what we do. And that language is pretty prevalent, uh, I think, say, even in Calvin and such. I think Bobbing has made some allusions to it in The Wonderful Works of God. Usually, though, we talk about this mirror as the word, though. And in this way, I think we, we start to really see the ties then between the conscience and general revelation. As we've said in previous episodes on the wonderful works of God, general revelation is still rooted and based in the word itself. Right. And so when it comes down to it, the conscience itself, it can only convict with guilt and recrimination and it can only have lament. It doesn't know deliverance itself, just like general revelation in our fallen state does not give us a deliverance. And so the only thing that can actually purify the conscience that can rid it of untrue things, what is good and what is bad, the only thing that can set it straight is Christ himself. Christ must be the content of our conscience. The conscience only functions in the way that it is intended when it is doing so under the authority of the word of God. Yeah, if that's the case, I mean, Christ being the way to the Father, the one who perfectly knows his father's will, then renews our mind uh, and our our, our own volition, our our will to correspond and reflect God's holy will. And that's the mirror of what you're talking about. There is an entirely close relationship between the conscience and the law of God. You know, this is where we're given that promise in Jeremiah 34 that in the new covenant, through relationship with Christ, the Lord will write his holy law, its statutes and our understanding of it on the heart. And that will conform our pattern in walking in the way of the Lord. 
So concluding this chapter in Reformed Ethics on the Conscience, Bavink gives a couple of helpful takeaways about the conscience, talking about the freedom of the conscience versus the binding of the conscience. He says, first, conscience only binds the subject and no one else. So your conscience is your conscience. It's not the conscience of the world. It's not the conscience of society. It's not the conscience of your brothers and sisters or your friends. So we need to respect each other's conscience and consider conscience sacred, as Bob Inc. says. And we must also take care not to offend each other's conscience. But then last he says, and this could possibly open its own can of worms, but he said, second, conscience limits all earthly authority, such as that of the church and the state. Neither may compel us to do what our conscience forbids us to do, lest we damn ourselves by sinning against God or against him who we honor as God. Dun, dun, dun. What he's getting at here, though, and this is important as we think about our doctrine of the conscience, is that you should respect the conscience of others, but also your conscience you ought to obey. And if someone is asking you to disobey your conscience, that's not something that should be done. That's not something that should be taken lightly. Bavin continues, this does not mean that the church and the state should not require anything that is forbidden by the consciences of its members. In that case, no community would be possible. Individuals who disagree with the law and have conscientious objection to it should not be compelled. They may offer passive resistance, but not the active resistance of rebellion. And we could probably spend an entire episode just talking about this concept, this idea of, well, we could do probably multiple episodes, freedom of conscience as it relates to the church, freedom of conscience as it relates to the state. At the end of the day, the conscience is free except under God. Yeah, his authority. This is a great place to bring it up, having just finished General Revelation in Wonderful Works, and we're going to be transitioning over to Special Revelation. And here, you know, what Bob Inc. is really uh, attesting to is that nature in Scripture, uh, he closes his article on the conscience, the very last sentence of page 126, nature and Scripture are not hostile toward each other, but belong together, and the one without the other is unfinished and incomplete. So in this way, general revelation and special revelation are intricately bound. And, you know, I'm sure this is a subject on the conscience that we'll be able to keep bringing up later and later. But for now, we'll leave that there and pick that up at another time. Yeah, because there's a lot here. And I mean, there's a lot of different nuances and different applications to what we've learned here. But we've used up all our time for today. So we thank you again for listening to Bobcast. Remember, you can visit bovcast.com for latest news and updates. Follow us on social media. Send us an email, bovcast at gmail.com. And until next time, tot zines. Zotins. Oh, we're doing that again? Nah. <laughs> Fine. Thank you for listening to Bovcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bovcast news and updates, visit Bovcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bovcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. 
Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.